Are we spiraling downwards to the bottom? Is there any hope for value-based pricing and diagnostics? Dr. Roger Klein is back. Welcome to the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast. I'm Joe Anderson. Dr. Roger Klein is a former Health and Human Services Advisor to FDA, CMS, and the CDC, as well as the immediate past chair of the Association for Molecular Pathology Solid Tumors Division. A physician as well as an attorney, Dr. Klein served as an expert and key spokesperson in the lawsuit AMP versus Myriad Genetics, in which the United States Supreme Court invalidated patents on breast cancer genes. He is a leading authority on public policies related to the implementation of precision medicine. Roger, welcome back. This time I'd like to talk about cost-based versus value-based pricing in diagnostics, and I think a good place to pick up is PAMA, which you alluded to last time. Now, I believe PAMA resulted in significant cuts of well over 30% hitting hardest routine chemistries and smaller labs. Could you tell us what is PAMA exactly? Uh, what is the impact of PAMA on molecular diagnostics? And is this a harbinger of further price cuts to come to the field? It was called the Protecting Access to Medicare Act of 2014. And what, what had happened was you, a, a yearly process that used to go on every year where physicians faced a large pay cut uh, that never happened. They always fixed it. And they were trying to create a long-term doc fix in 2014. And they got very far with it, but then and, and but they weren't able to complete it in 2014. So they ended up having to stave off these huge cuts that were built into law and would have affected physician payments. And the way they did it was by putting in a system that was intended to cut laboratory expenditures and to convert payment into what they termed a market-based system. Laboratory payment fees for Medicare had been essentially determined by cost. They'd been basically cost-based determinations, had some occasional uh, updates for inflation with no real way to reduce payments. As newer tests became automated and, and less expensive to do, there was a, a sense that, that many of these were probably overpriced. What they did was they set up a system where laboratories need to report price and volume data for their tests. And in that way, it would CMS would take all the data it receives and create for each test, for each CPT code, a volume-weighted uh, median. In the belief that it, prices would likely fall under this system, there were uh, limits to how much a test could drop each year. So it's 10% for the first three years and then 15% for three years. And after that, it's uh, anything. But as you suggest, what happened was most of the data came from the largest labs, which have the best pricing structures from an industry standpoint, lowest pricing structures from an industry standpoint. I think 75, 80% of tests uh, had a had a price drop. And some of these were significant. I think at least half of them were 30% or more. And I, the tests that were most heavily impacted by this were older, older chemistry tests that had been priced a long time ago. The new molecular test had been more recently priced, and as a result, didn't see the same, for the most part, level of payment reduction. Some of them actually went up. Uh, still, some high-volume tests, some of the higher-volume tests went down. So you have all this reported data from laboratories, and CMS publishes it, so the whole world sees what the price is. All the insurance companies see what other insurance companies are paying for lab tests. And of course, everybody wants the best price. And private payers are not constrained by having to uh, only allowing a 10% drop 
per year in price, for example. So private payers can look at all those data and they can suddenly come in and they can say, we're going to reduce our prices to 50% of Medicare, as some have announced that they have been planning to do. I see. So PAMA hit uh, the older chemistry tests the hardest. And for molecular, you're saying it was uh, neutral to possibly beneficial in some cases? No, I well, I, I wouldn't say that. I think it's harmful in the sense that, for example, if you have a test like BCR-ABLE that's very high volume or chimerism or something in a laboratory that has a substantial hit, uh, cut, then that's, a, that's an important hit for a hospital lab. I think that it, for certain proprietary tests, it may be beneficial. Most, most molecular tests, many, many molecular tests were reduced, but they didn't, they're not as hit, hit as hard as those in the, uh, in the chemistry world that have been, that were priced a long time ago. But I, I think it's important to understand that for the vast majority of tests, I, and, and there are, look, there's selective examples that did well under it, but, but I think for the vast, for the majority of tests, you have all of a sudden this payment data that's sitting out there, and it's really based on contracts with the largest insurance companies. The bulk of the data, the biggest part of the data was from the largest laboratories, and they tend to have lower prices, and so, the private, I think there's substantial risk that private payers are going to try to drive prices down. And that creates a spiral because you go through, you have every three years this process where they collect data from the labs and then they set the fee schedule. And if the private payers reduce their prices, the next time they gather data, you're going to have lower prices still. There, there are substantial risks to this. Yes, I think colloquially that's what's known as the race to the bottom. Now, one feature about PAMA that was nice or certainly encouraging for labs pursuing value-based pricing is that it allowed these MAS or proprietary tests to be reimbursed at list price, at least to start. An assay from Castle Biosciences was awarded a list price of over $7,000, which I think is certainly encouraging for those interested in the prospects of value-based pricing. You have to realize there are there's only last time I looked I think there were only maybe three or four MAAAs there weren't there were the uh, ADLTs they call them CMS has been very they set up very stringent criteria for uh, designating something an ADLT and allowing it tests to take advantage of that payment structure but that it's certainly beneficial now if look if after the three months or well, I, I believe it's three months but after the period of time that they start at list price if they're getting paid if the price ultimately falls Falls, they're going to go through the same process every year, that, then they would need to pay back some of those funds. It creates a, a, a floor for, in a sense, uh, as well for private payers. I mean, it, you know, it kind of, if Medicare is paying a certain amount, some private payers are going to base their rates on what Medicare pays, and they'll start off with a higher base point. And I, you know, you can't help but believe this is going to benefit or result in higher prices for some of these tests. Now, you, I know you and I have had discussions, heated discussions about this in the past. You have not been very sanguine on value-based pricing. Do you think there's there's hope? Or first, let's tell people, let's define value-based pricing. And, you know, to me, that's that was one of the promises of, you know, this new generation of tests that we're able to create value and capture value. I think you have to look at it from a number of different perspectives. I think historically, the lab industry, lab tests have been have been paid more on a on a cost type basis and where you don't for the most part have intellectual property on the the analytes you may you know on the instruments you do but not on the analytes 
and you have competing labs, there tends to, to be a high volume, uh, lower margin business as labs compete for price. And I don't, the notion of value based pricing seems quixotic in that world where, for example, a cardiac troponin can save somebody's life. You know, it has enormous value, but, but you're not going to pay very much for it. And so you go in the emergency department and you have a, you have tests like that that have great value, but aren't going to be reimbursed. I think it's partly a, or a, to, in a large measure, a, a result of negotiating uh, power. So if you have a very strong test, if you have a test, for example, Oncotype DX, again, would I'll, I'll use breast, the Oncotype DX breast, where they've got now a, a, a very sizable and substantial body of literature showing areas in which the test can benefit patients. You really have, you have some competitors, but but they either don't aren't quite the same or don't have the data to support their use. A provider like that has very strong negotiating power with a payer, and and in fact, in a, in a test where you're like Oncotype, where you're you're eliminating utilization of something that's potentially uh, expensive and toxic, that that's a that's an added plus. So I you know I think it's really a negotiating issue when you talk about value. I think you can get more of what you deem your test is worth in the care of the patient if a you're the only one who provides it and there are no alternatives. And it's even better if you're if you save costs. You know if you can show that you're that there's a favorable cost-benefit analysis, and then basically what you're doing is you're capturing, you're able to capture a greater proportion of the those that cost savings. Yeah, I like that. I think you're right. It is somewhat quixotic, but I, and I think once a competitor enters the marketplace who has equivalent data or comparable data, I think the picture is going to change. So I think in this in this first generation, so to speak, of these multivariate tests, there's been a substantial opportunity to save money in terms of unnecessary procedures. So in breast cancer, you can uh, eliminate chemotherapy for patients who are unlikely to benefit. In prostate cancer, you can opt for watchful waiting instead of going immediately to prostatectomy. Same thing in colon, early stage uh, colon cancer, you might forego chemotherapy. So I think there's been a huge potential for savings there. I think in the next generation of tests, specifically the liquid biopsy, there's going to be continued opportunity for savings. And I think particularly the liquid biopsy is going to allow us to forego costly surgical procedures and biopsies with with the risk of subsequent complications. Uh, so are we going to be able to capture value there in the diagnostic space? I, you know, I'm going to have to present, I think, a counter view in, in that way. I think no. I, I mean, I think, I, think a, I think these types of tests are going to be commoditized and just the same way that um, I think many of the other uh, next generation sequencing tests, and these are mostly next generation sequencing, at least what we're looking at now, I think they're going to be commoditized in uh, increasingly commoditized as more and more providers come into this space. It doesn't create the same opportunity because you have competition. For example, some of the tests that are MAAAs that are not ADLTs are still getting reimbursed very well under PAMA. And the reason is because their private reimbursement is fine. It's high. And the reason is, is that they don't have competitors. They fill a need, They're, they've been found to have value, and they, and they had the leverage to negotiate a price that allowed them to capture some of that value. And, and some would, would say it's not a problem. You know, if you're on the other side and you're paying for it, it's the opposite. The analytes themselves are not, you don't have intellectual property, you just have property on 
for example, a person who, who has a method of isolating DNA, free, free DNA from tumors, you know, a company that has that type of technology, of course, can patent the technology, and there's many different technological approaches, but, but, but the analytes themselves, anybody can test for it. I mean, I think it, it advances the field much more when people all have the right, many have the right to, to use general purpose instruments to perform these tests. But what you end up having are many providers, and then they end up competing on price and quality. But price ends up to play a very, very large role in that. They develop models just as they're doing an inherited disease testing based on very, very high volumes and low margins. And I think that's probably where that space is going. So is there hope? And what would you say to uh, a new test developer trying to capture value in diagnostics? I mean, I think if you were, if, if you took every lab test and you captured the value, look at KRAS, for example. KRAS testing is ubiquitous. Everybody does KRAS testing, yet it provides enormous value because you tell, you, you spare somebody a, an expensive uh, anti-EGFR therapy, and, but yet the test is uh, probably a couple hundred bucks. I think that that's kind of in the nature of um, lab testing. What it, It's really, I don't think, I think it's much less, conceptual sort of value based or I, I think it's mostly a, a situation of negotiating power and where you have a lot of competitors it's the same thing in pharmaceuticals if you get with the minute a generic drug comes in bingo the price uh, typically drops dramatically of the name brand drug and i the more competitors you you tend to have in these spaces like this uh, the more commoditized uh, the more the more entities compete on price they learn how to make things cheaper it forces it, it's actually a good thing from an economic standpoint i believe and from the the care the 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 even from patient care, it, it, you, it, it becomes very difficult to spend lots and lots of money to do serial liquid biopsy tests, for example. If, if, if anybody can do it, I mean, I think there, you, know, you will soon have the ability as an oncologist, probably, if you want to, to have an instrument to look for certain resistance mutations, say, for in, who have lung cancer. There's one company that has, um, has an instrument that does a single cartridge. You stick it in, and, and, and the result comes out. So you're going to be able to do those types of tests. And I think there's utility in, in when, the, when it's cheap enough, there's utility in doing this serially or likely to be utility in doing this serially on a relatively frequent basis. You know, of course, if it's negative, you might need to go get a biopsy. But, but it, it will save a lot of people, as you suggested, biopsies and other, uh, other inconveniences. And I think we'll probably find out that there's a benefit to switching therapies earlier. And, you know, for example, if you have a resistance mutation. But I don't think that, that this type of approach is feasible when you're paying thousands of dollars for each individual test. So there is value there. It's just a matter of who, who's going to capture that value. Yeah. Oh, there's absolutely. It's it's not a question that there isn't value. It's I, again, I look at this more of a supply and demand. Alternatively, that also is what kind of sets the stage for further advancement. Is price prices going down? Oh, absolutely. Again, I mean, I think we will find ways. I think liquid biopsies are have an enormous potential to better care. And I, you know, if it if it costs fifty bucks and some of it's wasted, it's not that big a deal. If it costs, you know. 
$2,500 and you, you don't want to do it unless you, you're, you're sure that you, you, you need to do it and that you can act on the information. Again, this is, these tests I think are going to be commoditized and I think at the Association for Molecular Pathology annual meeting, Thermo Fisher presented their new, and I, I don't like to usually mention brands, but I thought I'd mention this particular one because it was unique. And, you know, you can stick in a sample now, a next generation sequencing test. So unlike the other test I was describing that was put in a blood sample and they do kind of a restricted PCRs and you get the result back, liquid biopsy, this test actually does next generation sequencing on many genes. Its samples start to finish with even the report generated. Uh, out of, out of fully automated and you know you might have to you might want to edit the report and you may want to some of that intellectual content you might want to uh, tinker with your yourself a bit but but I think this is the direction it's heading and as software gets better and and as um, our the ability to automate these tests improves beyond um, what I think you know five ten years ago we would have ever dreamed you know I just I, I think that I think that's what's that's how where it's going to head but then there'll be the next new thing There'll be, and that, that's what we always have to look forward to. So what do you think the future is going to hold? Oh, I, I mean, I think, I, you know, this is a golden age. We're, we're just scratching the surface. I mean, what, what we're seeing now is a, a revolution in our ability to, to scientifically diagnose and treat disease. Uh, cancer is a really important area right now, in, in part because it, it's genetic, and it's, um, it, it clearly involves changes that that would be uh, potentially amenable to modulation of certain pathways which we can logically de deduce whether they're immunologic or or targeted or more likely uh, probably in in the future some combination of both so we're just scratching the surface of our ability to gather data to understand it to analyze it uh, I think the computing, the ability to um, to utilize computer and data analysis, and 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 look at look at large sets of data is just exploding. But we're still at the, we're just in the in the beginning stages, and there's all when we start combining though this information. It's an information world now. It's no longer, it's not a mechanical world of testing. It's an information world, and when we can combine it with with, for example protein profiles and chemical profiles and and with history and uh, clinical characteristics and we can we have smart statisticians data scientists who can uh, mathematically combine these results and uh, and really give us a, a true um, ability to predict what's going to happen and 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 how a patient what treatments the patients are are most likely to respond to i, I think I, you know i think ultimately it's it's going to be just a miraculous change and i, I mean 100 years from now people will look back at what we do now and they'll they'll, they'll the same way we we would look back and lou invoke <laughs> a golden age indeed well, our guest has been uh, dr roger klein roger how can people learn more about you Oh, well, uh, I have a website, um, Roger D. Klein, R-O-G-E-R-D-Klein, K-L-E-I-N, uh, dot com. Uh, and I, I post a lot, I do a lot of writing and, uh, and uh, post uh, links to articles and other uh, appearances and that sort of thing. Our guest has been Dr. Roger Klein. We'll see you next time on the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast. Thank you.